Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Please take your Bible or your Bible app and open with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 is where we're going to begin in a moment. I'm curious how many have ever heard the name Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton. It's possible that a few of you have heard of him. Uh, He was an evangelist for Youth for Christ decades ago. It was said of Charles Templeton at one time that he's the most gifted, talented evangelist in the world. The most gifted, talented evangelist in the world. If you haven't heard of Charles Templeton, you may have heard of one of his companions, a man that was considered to have lesser gifts and lesser talent. Uh, You know his name as Billy Graham. Now, Willie Graham went on to preach the gospel to more people in human history than anyone else, thanks to technology and thanks for his passion uh, to get the gospel to the masses. But unfortunately, Charles Templeton did not. Five years after the announcement was made that he was the most gifted, talented evangelist in the world, Charles Templeton walked away from the faith. He said he no longer believed in Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, decades passed, over 50 years passed, and Lee Strobel wanted to do a follow-up on Charles Templeton and to do an interview at his home. By this time, Templeton was in his 80s. And so when Strobel did the interview, he allowed him to video most of it. Some of us saw the interview about five years ago when we did that Case for Faith series uh, here at the church. But in preparation for his book, Case for Faith, Lee Strobel asked Charles Templeton, an elderly Charles Templeton, this question. What do you think of Jesus Christ now? What do you think of Jesus Christ now? This was his response. Jesus was the greatest human being who ever lived. Everything decent I know, everything pure I know I learned from Jesus. And then unexpectedly tears begin to well up in his eyes. And he said these words, I miss him. I miss him. Templeton then put his hand over his face as tears rolled down his cheeks between his fingers, and he said it two more times, I miss him. Now, it's very obvious that Jesus had made an impact on this man. Actually, Jesus has made quite an impact on many people, billions of people, whether they considered themselves Jesus followers or not. Albert Einstein, for instance, writes this, I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Napoleon Bonaparte said, I know men. And I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. H.G. Wells wrote, I am an historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as an historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Theodore Dostovsky said, I believe there is no one deeper, lovelier, more sympathetic, and more perfect than Jesus. Not only is there no one else like him, there never could be anyone like him. My favorite quote is probably from Elvis Presley. In an interview where someone called him the king, he said, no, honey, I'm not the king. Christ is the king. I'm just a singer. Now, my goal today in this message is very simple. 
All I want to do is preach Jesus. I just want to preach Jesus. As we go into the Thanksgiving holiday, my prayer is that you will have gratitude well up in your heart when you see who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Today's message is very simple. I'm going to give you one thing to know and two things to do. One thing to know and two things to do. If you want to take notes, you can follow along with the app. The app has a lot more content there than we have time to cover this morning. It'll help you in your devotions and your Bible study this week. Uh, But let's go ahead and jump in. Philippians chapter 2, if you have your Bible or your Bible app, the words will also be on the screen. Let me invite you to stand out of respect for the Bible. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I'll read. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We'll begin looking at verse 5. In verse 5, Paul writes, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, if you're taking notes or you write in your Bible, you might circle the word your, and you might write the word plural. This is a plural word. He's not talking to you as an individual, me as an individual. He's talking to a group of people. In West Virginia, we say y'all. He's talking to y'all. He's writing to the church. Now, this is just another little signpost about the way the New Testament was written. Most of the New Testament is written for believers. Most of the New Testament is written for y'all. If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, my prayer is that you will put your faith and trust in Christ. At the end of the message, I'll have a word for you about how you can become a Jesus follower. But this passage is written to believers. And so my message today is primarily for you who are believers. What's Paul's message to the church? Well, according to verse 5, he wants us to have a particular mindset that is epitomized in the person of Jesus. Verses 1 through 4 is, gives a description of the mindset, and we'll cover that when we go verse by verse through Philippians later. But verses 5 through 11 tells us about one person who embodied this mindset. And that person, of course, is Jesus. Now, in verses 6 through 11 really form what many Bible teachers believe is an ancient hymn. There are several times in Paul's writings where he would seem to take ancient hymns or creeds and put them right into the text. And God used them as the inspired word but most believe it was an ancient hymn sung by the early church or an ancient creed recited by the early church. Let's look at that ancient creed. Verse six, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own 
advantage. The question of the ages is this, who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus? Well, Paul says here, being in very nature, God. Your translation may say he is in the form of God. That translation works as long as we understand it properly, but I like the NIV translation here that says he is in very nature, God. The word for nature or form in our Bibles is the Greek word morphe, M-O-R-P-H-E, transliterated in English. We hear that word in metamorphosis. Meta means change, but actually the word morphe refers to nature. So Jesus's nature before Christmas was God. Jesus's nature after Christmas was God. Jesus's nature after Easter was God. After the ascension, his nature is and always will be God. We see this truth in verse six as it continues. He said, he did not consider himself, consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In a way that we can't fully understand, Jesus Christ is God the Son. He's the second person of the Trinity. Just as much God as God the Father and just as much God as God the Son. Again, he was God before Bethlehem. He has eternally existed. Jesus was God when he played in the streets of Nazareth as a child. He was God when he died on the cross. He was God when he rose again. And he is God who has ascended into heaven today. This is what makes us different than the Muslim faith. There's a number of things that make us different than the Muslim faith, but this is one of the primary tenets that make us different. All roads do not lead to heaven. All religions are not the same. We believe Jesus Christ is God of very gods in the flesh. This is also what makes us different than many of the cults who ride their bicycles around your neighborhood. We believe that Jesus is God of very gods in the flesh. Now, if you have the app, you'll see these verses on the app, but if not, you can take, I'm gonna jot these down. John 1.14 says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. You and I did not come from the Father. We have not pre-existed. We were initiated at conception. We don't have an eternal past. Jesus does. John 5, 18, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John 8, 54, Jesus replied, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him and Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, 
but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be whom? God. Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh, the Messiah. John chapter 20, verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house. This is after the resurrection. And Thomas was with him. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. We see it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, and visible and invisible, or the thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things have been created by him and through him, for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. I love this short little verse, Colossians 2.9. For in Christ, not half, not part, but all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. As if we needed one more quote, I love what C.S. Lewis writes about Jesus. He says, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Back in verse 6, it says that he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. If you're taking notes, uh, you could also translate that phrase. Uh, He did not consider it something to be selfishly held onto, which is why some of the older translations use the word grasped. Jesus did not consider it something to be used to his own advantage. We'll see what that means more in a moment, but essentially Jesus had every right to continue receiving glory in eternity past, eternity present, eternity future, but he chose to set that aside temporarily in order to save you and me. Let's look at verse seven. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, made himself nothing. What does that mean? Well, there's a, uh, there's a couple of things we know it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he stopped being God, right? There's nowhere in the Bible that teaches when Jesus was born at Christmas, he laid aside being God. That's impossible. We saw that already. He claimed to be God. The Bible tells us he was God. Even the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, would be God. So it doesn't mean that he quit being God. There's something else it also doesn't mean. It also doesn't mean that Jesus set aside or laid aside his divine attributes. Now, that's a common teaching in some branches of Christianity, even here in our area, 
And I want us to avoid that. Jesus Christ did not lay aside his deity and he did not lay aside the attributes of his deity. You say, well, how do you know that? Think about, if you've been in church for any length of time, think about as you read the gospels, how many times the fact that Jesus is God kind of peeks out. I like to describe it like putting, the, putting a symphony in a pop can, right? If you poke a hole in the pop can, the symphony just glares out. There are times in Jesus's life where his deity just is glaring. For instance, the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. The disciples saw Jesus unveil a portion of his, 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 his humanity and his deity was on full display. Uh, we see it when Jesus walked on water. We see it when Jesus raised the dead, right? So Jesus didn't lay aside his deity. He didn't lay aside portions or characteristics of his deity. I think it's okay for us to say he veiled his deity often, but he didn't cast them aside. We already saw back in verse six that Jesus is by very nature God. So what did Jesus empty himself of? What did he do to make himself nothing? Here's the answer if you're taking notes, four words. The glory of heaven. The glory of heaven. He released, he divested his privileged status of remaining in heaven with God the Father. Think about what Jesus had in eternity past with God the Father. He had unending glory. He had the anthems of the angels. He had the glory of the seraphim and the cherubim, but he chose to give all of that up temporarily, which is why John 17 says this. In John 17, this is the key that unlocks this verse. John 17, Jesus prayed, the great high priestly prayer. He said, Father, glorify me again with the glory I had before the world was created. Glorify me again with the glory I had before the world was created. For the first time in eternity, God could be cut and bleed. For the first time in eternity, God, the Son, could be killed. Jesus made himself nothing. Now, if you're taking notes, this really helped me this week to wrap my mind around it, and I think it'll help you. What does this mean that he made himself nothing? It doesn't mean subtraction, but it does mean addition. It doesn't mean subtraction, but it does mean addition. In other words, Jesus took on an additional nature. The nature of God also took on the nature of humanity. That's how he made himself nothing. You say, well, how can you make yourself nothing by adding something? I'll illustrate it this way. When our girls were in elementary school, they ran cross country and for St. Matthew's Elementary in Louisville. And we had a good time together the first couple years, there was a coach that she did a great job, but eventually her daughter went on to middle school, and so they needed a coach. And so I think it was like Katie's fourth grade year, I volunteered to be the girls' cross-country coach, right? And so I was all excited. You know, I had great visions of, of taking these girls. I was thinking chariots of fire, taking them all the way to the championship in the state of Kentucky. We used to go to Frankfurt every year. It was a big deal. Um, and so I was all excited, right? What I found out, though, that the job consisted more of making sure the Capri Suns were stocked, that everybody's hair bands and hair bows were able to be found after the meet, 
Um, everybody's shoes were tied and, and I found out what not to say to make them cry, right? I, and so that's, that's a lot of what the job consisted of. And my buddies used to ha- have a good time teasing me about being the, the girls' cross-country coach. In many ways, I made myself a little lower by adding something to my resume. I was already an executive pastor. I was already a, a seminary student. But now I added to my resume, fourth grade girls, cross-country coach. And so I'd made myself a little lower, not through subtraction, but through addition. Jesus made himself a little lower, not by ceasing to be God, but by adding humanity to himself. This is how we like to say it at Bible Center. Our member statement of faith written in collaboration with our elder board. Through the power and work of the Holy Spirit in the incarnation through the virgin birth, Jesus fully took on human nature, including a human body and a human experience while living a sinless life. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Both natures are unified in Christ without confusion or the minimization of either nature. Let's look at verse eight. Verse eight says, and being found in appearance as a man. What does that mean? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Someone has once said, you can tell the depth of a well by how far you have to lower the rope. And we can tell the depth of our sin by how far God had to lower the rope to save us. How low did he have to go to save us? This verse is gonna tell us how low. Well, this idea of appearance as a man In some of your translations, some will point to that and say, see, Jesus wasn't really fully human. He just had the appearance of a human, kind of like a a mirage or a, a ghost. Jesus wasn't fully human, they say. Well, that's not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament clearly teaches that Jesus is not only fully God, but he is fully human. This is in your notes. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul says that he was fully man. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that Jesus thirsted. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was, could experience pain just like you and I could experience pain. He could be tempted just like you and I are tempted. So why, does, why do some translations say here that he had the appearance of a man? Well, Romans chapter eight and verse three is the key to unlocking this verse. Romans chapter eight and verse three says this. He uses the same Greek word. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son, here it is, in the likeness or appearance, same word, of sinful flesh to be a sin offering and so he condemned sin in the flesh. The best way to understand Philippians 2.8 when it says he was in the appearance of a man is to write in the little word sinful before the word appearance. That's Paul's understanding. Paul wasn't saying that he kind of looked like a human, but he really wasn't. No, he is saying he he looked like a sinful human, but we know he really wasn't. That's why he goes on. The rest of the verse now makes sense. He says he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Paul is saying he looked like every other sinful man and woman. With one exception, he wasn't sinful. 
If we were to put a microphone in Paul's face and say, Paul, describe Jesus's life in one word, I believe Paul would describe it as obedient. Paul would say Jesus lived a life of obedience. If anybody ever asks you, if you believe in salvation by works, do you believe in salvation by works? That's kind of a common question, even here in West Virginia. Here's how you can answer. When somebody asks me that, I say, yes, 100%. I believe in salvation is by works. Like, wait a minute, before you kick me off the platform here, not my works, Jesus's works. You see, Jesus Christ, according to Paul in Philippians 2 and verse 8, had to live a life of obedience from birth until death in order to qualify as our Savior. Jesus Christ could not have come to earth on Thursday, died on the cross on Friday, rose again on Sunday, went back to heaven on Monday, and accomplished your and my salvation. In the Old Testament, there had to be a time period where the sacrificial lamb was examined for any blemish, for any imperfection. And God in his providence allowed Jesus to live 30-some years for his disciples to examine him, for his family to examine him. Here in the spring, on the second Sunday of January, we're going to start a whole series through James. James was Jesus' half-brother, Right? James, I want to call the series Bunk Beds with Jesus. The creative team just doesn't think that's cool, so I'm letting you know that I think that would be cool. Probably we're going to go with something else. But here's James, Jesus' brother. Maybe they shared a bedroom together. When you're a brother or sister of somebody, you know whether or not they're perfect. James went on to give his heart to Christ, his brother, Because you see, Jesus could be examined. He lived the perfect life. And then at the divinely appointed time, he died the death for your sin and for mine. Notice the end of verse eight. Paul highlights the apex of Jesus's obedience. It wasn't just death, but it was even death on a cross. It's repeated here for emphasis. When this text would have been originally read to the church at Philippi, there would have been a gasp. Not just death, death on a cross. The most despicable, the most painful, shameful death. Even the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, said that you were to be cursed of God if you died on a pole. Jesus chose the most horrific death for one reason and one reason only. John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Romans 5, 8, God showed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So think of the progression we've gone through so far, just in these little verses, verses six through eight. Jesus became human, but his big heartedness didn't stop there. Jesus made himself a servant, but his open-handedness didn't stop there. Jesus humbled himself, but his liberality didn't stop there. Jesus relegated himself to a level of perfect obedience, but his charity didn't stop there. The apex of his generosity stands an old rugged cross. If you want to know what generosity looks like, If you want to know what divine love looks like, 
Go to a little hill on the outskirts of Jerusalem where once stood an old rugged cross. And according to Paul, that's what generosity looks like. That's what divine love really is. Here's today's big idea. The one thing that I want you to know, if you forget everything else, remember this. Jesus is the most generous person who has ever lived. Jesus is the most generous person who has ever lived. Consider just a few of the statements that Jesus made. There are hundreds of them, if not thousands. Here's just a few. Acts 20, 35. Paul is quoting Jesus here. Jesus is never recorded having said this. It's not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Uh, but evidently, Jesus told Paul this when he was being trained in the desert. Acts 20, 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that by his poverty he could make you rich. Luke 4, 18 and 19. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Think of the generosity in this verse, John 10, 10. The thief comes only, that's Satan, to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And lastly, Ephesians 4, 7. God has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. Jesus is the most generous person who has ever, ever lived. So what can we do with that? Here are the two takeaways. Here's the first one. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. The Bible tells us that God created all things, but we are broken because sin has broken all things. But thankfully, Jesus came to save us. Jesus wants to restore you. He wants to transform you. Jesus wants to save you. But here it is, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 13. You have to call upon the name of the Lord. You have to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Here at Bible Center, we believe and we believe it heavily in the providence and sovereignty of God. But providence and sovereignty never gets rid of your responsibility. You have the responsibility to believe. You have the responsibility to call upon the name of the Lord and receive his free gift by his grace. I read this week of a true story. The year was 1830. Some of you Marshall fans will like this. In the year 1830, George Wilson was convicted of a federal crime and sentenced to death by hanging. Well, George, the president at the time, Andrew Jackson, gave George Wilson a pardon. A pardon, as you know, is a federal order for giving a man for the crime he has committed. But for some unknown reason, George Wilson refused the pardon. He wouldn't accept Andrew Jackson's generosity. He refused it. And so the authorities didn't know what to do, right? Do we like kick him out of prison anyway, right? Do we not hang him? What do we do? And so they consulted the chief justice at the time, John Marshall. John Marshall being from Virginia, 
John Marshall, the fourth chief justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, John Marshall, from where we get Marshall University, wrote this. A pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is to be determined by the person pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul ends this section with a similar thought. He says in verse 9, Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the message. Every one of us, you included, will bow your knee to Jesus, whether you believe in him now or not. Every one of us, including you, will call Jesus Lord, whether you believe in him now or not. And so what I'm calling you to do this morning is to trust him now, to believe in him now, not to wait until you're on that side, until you're forced to call him Lord and cast out forever from the presence of the redeemed. But today, today, you believe, you trust in Jesus while there's still hope. Trust Jesus today. But lastly, number two, thank God. Be thankful for Jesus today. Be thankful for Jesus today. Think about how hard the last couple of years has been. Now I realize for some, maybe it hasn't been as hard as it has been for others. But when we look over the last couple of years, this is gonna define much of our lives. It's impacted so much of what we do or don't do. Now, this Thanksgiving, you may sit around with your family and friends and, and you may recall and count your blessings. I think that's a good thing, right? Like, you know, before you pray, my grandma always wanted us to do that. And that turkey and mashed potatoes is right in front of us. Man, that was a hard few minutes. But you go around the table and you count your blessings before you dig in. There's much we have to be thankful for. If you have a job, I hope you're thankful for your job. If you've got a car, I hope you're thankful for your car. If you've got a house, hopefully you're thankful for your house. There's so many material blessings, absolutely nothing wrong with being thankful for those things. But let's remember that everything I just mentioned one day is gonna go away. It's gonna burn, actually, the Bible says. So yes, be thankful for those things, but certainly there's some more important things to be thankful for. Our family, our friends, those are more important things. But I submit to you, there's something more important than anything else I've mentioned. And that is the salvation you have in Jesus Christ. You see, imagine what would happen if your life didn't have Jesus. Life's hard enough with Jesus. Imagine it without Jesus. Talked to a man this morning after the first service who his cancer has returned. He's going back for a second round of treatment. He looked pale as he sat in the service. I talked with him. He's like, man, I'm going to be okay. Ain't none of us getting out of this alive. I have Jesus. Imagine what your life would be without Jesus. Or imagine if, if God had never opened your heart to faith, right? You didn't become a Christian because you're smart enough to be a Christian. You didn't become a Christian because you were able to interpret the complexities of God's word more than the person down the street. 
You became a Christian because God opened your heart to faith. Imagine what would have happened if God would have not done that. Oh, we have so very much to be thankful for. And that's why we take communion week after week. Another name for communion is the cup of thanksgiving. Some denominations call it Eucharist. We don't typically call it that, but we could. This is where that comes from. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving, that's the Greek word Eucharist, for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Be thankful for Jesus today, especially when we take communion. You say, Matt, why? It all goes back to our big idea. Because Jesus is the most generous person who has ever lived. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media.